I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 4. The Lord continues to lead his people into the promised land. Now Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 are passages that are occurring in simultaneous function to some degree. Joshua 4 is a relaying of events that happened to Israel while they're passing, in essence, a little before, a little after, through the Jordan. Um, The reason I waited is because I didn't want to preach two chapters last Sunday night. Um, It's a lot to read, it's a lot to cover, but also because I think it helps us uh, to go back over these things. The whole point of Joshua 4 is to remember. And what do we do when our children ask us, why are these stones stacked here? And so Israel is, as we often sing, raising an Ebenezer, a memorial of the Lord's continued faithfulness. I'll read all of chapter 4, and I would invite you to follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read, beginning in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 4. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry over or carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel. One man from every tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, the place where the feet of the priests, who bore the ark of the covenant, stood, and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the ark, stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished. The Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed over. Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people, and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them." About 40,000 prepared for war had crossed before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, 
The Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him, and they, as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass. When the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land. But the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, would that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. We pray all this in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Christ Christ, who is the cornerstone. Amen. Sweet stories, we often find. They're also hard stories. They're stories like these in which God reminds us and is given to the children of Israel forever. When God says forever, he means forever. We often have trouble Remembering these things, because when we say forever, we mean maybe a really long time. But God does not count time like we do. And when God says that these moments in Joshua 4 and the memorials that are erected to remember them are to stand forever, he means it. And so when we come to Joshua 4, I want us to not look like passive observers at church history. Children, I want you to think of this as your history. Um, when we would make the pilgrimage to Dalton, Georgia, from Douglasville, which is where I grew up, it was an hour and a half north, 90 minutes, which as a child felt like an eternity. It doesn't feel that way anymore. And we would travel skirting the city all the way up to go visit my mother's mother, the place where my mom was raised. My parents would tell us stories. These were the days before you could sit your kid behind an iPad. And my dad loved to tell the story of the time where he went to the clinic at the University of Georgia and found his friend working there after he met my mother at the clinic and asked for her number off the medical file. We call that a HIPAA violation. <laughs> I don't know if there was, I don't know what the history of HIPAA was, but this was 1974 or 5, and he was eager to get the number. 
And the story progresses from there. Their romance, the dates they went on, a life they had before we ever came into being. But those stories, though we had nothing to do with them, became our stories. And I have never forgotten them. They are my stories. They're my stories because they directly relate to my life. If my father had not gotten that phone number, who knows? I may never have been. If Joshua had not been called and chosen, if Israel had not been delivered across the Jordan, what may have been? This is our story. You need to think of it that way. And just because it happened a lot longer ago, kids, than your parents got together, many, many, many centuries before, these stories should be intimate in our affection and our identifying with them. This is the story of Christ and his church. This is what Jude tells us in his little epistle. These are the stories of Christ's faithfulness to his people. And this is how we are to remember. Christ gives us a method as to how we are to remember what his mighty deeds are what they say of himself and what they say of us, and how we are to practice a good and lively faith. Two points that I want to make tonight in relationship to this text. The first, lodging in a new land. Lodging in a new land. And then second, what you say when they ask. What you say when they ask. I did not remember it. My wife had to call it to mind last night while we're sitting on our back patio, burning a fire in this great big bowl that we burn our patio fires in, that it was 11 years ago to the day that we moved into the house. And our celebration after we closed on December 17th, 2011, was... We went to the back patio and we burn a fire. It was our patio. We belonged there. It was ours. Now, I know the bank's name is on the note, but as much as it can be called ours, it was ours. It was a sweet anniversary of sorts. We were marking. I just wanted to burn a fire. It just so happened that it was on that day. I'd been busy that day. I did not remember. Uh, it was lodging in a new house, and it became our house, and has become our house over 11 years. It's no longer strange to us. I could walk it blindfolded. And the day we moved in, it was, we're here. We're in a home. We can call this our own. It is not unlike that for Israel, the first night across the Jordan. And there they have among their tribes and in their camp 12 heavy, hard stones. They were pulled out from the midst of the Jordan. And at first, they're not erected in one pile. They get to take them home with them. As a reminder of God's faithfulness, we're here. This is what I mean by lodging in a new land. They are now walking in the place that is promised to them by God, and they have a tangible reminder of the means by which they have been brought over. Now, how did that come to be? Now, it is true that Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 are meant to be read 
maybe preached, but understood as parallel passages. And when the people had gone over, verse 1, the 12 men who were to follow the priests into the river were to remain in the river while the people continued on to gather 12 heavy, smooth river stones. These are the kinds of stones you find in the river. And they were to take them up out of the river, these delegates of each of the 12 tribes. They were to leave them in the place of their lodging until Joshua arranged them in Gilgal. These stones are representative not only of God's deliverance, but of the people who were delivered. Twelve stones, twelve tribes. It is a glorious kind of iconography. A reminder of Israel's, well, they, like all sinners, belonged at the bottom of the river, but due to God's mercy they had been brought out. So much of this and this memorial reminds them and it reminds us today of what could have been and what is the product of God's sovereign grace. It's a simple memorial they were to erect, just 12 stones. They were not to worship the memorial, nor were they to worship at the memorial. They were to remember through the memorial. It was a means of provoking a question. But it began first by taking it to their place of lodging. Now, Israel at that time and prior to that had no home. In fact, they had not had a home now for 440 years. You'll remember that Jacob and his sons went to Egypt because of the famine. And there Joseph, through God's sovereign providence, provided for the, the nation, a very small, fledgling nation, or rather a family. A family is the beginning of every nation, like Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, 70 people came to Egypt, 400 years later, 1.6 million, 40 years after that, the first generation had died off in the wilderness because of their faithlessness and their lack of trust in God, and now the second generation had come through the Jordan, and the longest road trip in the history of the world had ended, a 40-year road trip. God had not forgotten the way to go over the Jordan. They knew how to get to the land of Canaan. God kept them from it because of their disobedience. And so, with the passing of a curse and judgment, the opening up of the way into the land of promise. The Old Testament is full of types and signs, shadows, little glimpses of what will come. This is one of those, the ending of the curse and the opening up of the way into the land of promise, a land of peace. It's like waiting for the coming of Christ. We just sang it. Now in late appearing in the flesh. And it felt like that for those who waited for the coming of Christ. Why are you late? But he came exactly when he meant to. These homes... This place of their lodging, a kind of camp out, was a testimony that they had arrived. It's fun to go on vacation. I love a holiday. I love to leave the house for a short period of time. But if there is anything that is true of me as I get older, 
I love coming home. I love it. I love all the convenience and all that feels like my domain. (laughs) No more pilgrimage. The drive is done. No more asking, when are we going to get there? (sighs) We're home. Can you imagine how Israel felt? And how they got there? These are the things that you need to remember. How you get to the place where you are. Whenever we interview, especially adults for membership, one of the things we ask them is, we want to hear your testimony. And a testimony can be a, a thing that we elevate too highly over the gospel. Really what a testimony is, is a story of how one person comes to know and love Christ. Above all else, they tell their story. And it isn't a story of how great they are or uh, their own spiritual um, strength. It is ultimately, it is a story of humility and submission to the sovereign direction of God and how he arranged a saving meeting, a calling, a place, a time. For some, like myself, mine is a story being brought home into a covenant home and being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And there was never a time where I could not ask my my parents the question about something in the scriptures, uh, something like what the children of Israel were uh, anticipating, that the Lord was anticipating. They would ask, what's going on here? What happened here? And I always got the biblical answer as far as my parents were able There was woven into my identity from birth a memory of God's faithfulness to his people. Parents, this is one of the greatest things that you can give to your children as you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, is a memory of God's faithfulness. Because a memory of God's faithfulness will trump, over time, a memory of your unfaithfulness as parents. Parents make lots of mistakes. Right? Right. Lots. Where we are faithless, God is faithful. These memorial stones are to evoke emotion, real memory, a memory of God's deliverance and the way in which he did it. To remember the Jordan as a kind of Red Sea event. And how did it happen? Well, Lord willing, over the years, you'll remember. Now, how did it happen? Well, God said to Joshua, get the men of the town, or get the men of the tribes, these 12 men, ready. And what they're going to do is the priests will assemble, carrying the ark on the poles through the rings, the ark of testimony we call the ark of the covenant. Aaron's staff that had butted is inside of it. A copy of the Ten Commandments is inside of it. And a little bit of the manna that came from heaven is also there. And on top of it is this seat around which cherubim are standing. It is a copy of the throne room that stands in heaven. And they are to come to the edge of the Jordan. And there at the edge of the Jordan, they are to step into the water and the waters will stop. And as the waters stop and the ground dries, the priests go first. The 12 men come after them, 
And then the whole horde of the nation of Israel comes behind them. And while the priests are still standing there, and the 12 representatives from the tribes are standing there, the people pass by them. And after they have passed by, the 12 men are to gather 12 river stones, and they are to follow the people up onto the bank. And once everyone gets on the other side, the priests come out of the water. And as soon as they leave the water, the water or that the river, the riverbed, the water flows again. Tell me, Dad, how did that happen again? <laughs> Tell me again. I know your children love to hear stories. And in fact, one of the ways in which you, adults, will remain and retain a love for stories is by telling your children stories. And I'll tell you this, there are no boring stories. Don't think you don't have exciting stories. They just want to hear your stories. They're exciting to them. Do you know why? Because they know innately that they're their stories. This is our story. It is a story of God's deliverance. Nations don't just walk through rivers. It doesn't happen. Not rivers like Jordan. Not when the banks are overflown. So, when they ask, secondly... They have something to say. And it isn't just memory. It's something that causes the people of Israel and the generations that come after them to ask. Now, where we come from, and many of you come from, and I fact, anywhere in this country, if you drive long enough or go to small towns, you will find memorials. This battle happened here. Here's a statue. Here's a piece of granite polished with a plaque of bronze that relays some battle or some great historical event. Most of them are good. Some of them are tragedies. But those stones, those memorials, we erect as part of a national identity, as part of an ecclesiastical identity, we do this so that we might look back and say, look at what has happened. But for the church, for the church, it is a clear and conscious relaying how we think of history, what God has done, what God has done, his providence, his sovereignty, his superintendence over all things. And it starts in the home. Take it home. Think of these things God says in the book of Deuteronomy. When you get up, when you lie down, everywhere you go, when you prepare meals, it should be on the doorposts, on your hands, on your forehead. Everywhere you go, it needs to be baptized into the name of Christ. All of Christ for all of life. And in this way, even we Reformed Christians should not be iconoclasts. Now, it is one thing to use images to conjure and evoke emotion to worship God and to use those things other than the lively preaching of the Word of God as a means of provoking us to spiritual renewal. God does His work through His Word. But He has also given us eyes and hands and taste buds. In fact... What great regular element in the gathering of the saints together has God given us 
connected to the sacrament of baptism that is a clear and perpetual reminder of our going down and dying and being raised up again. If you answered the Lord's Supper in your minds, then you got it right. Congratulations. The $5 question. And we did that this morning, didn't we? In fact, one of the reasons why communicants classes work is because children come to their parents at some point and they say, what is going on here? Or the unbeliever may say, what are you doing? Which is why a homily or an explanation of the Lord's table is helpful. When your children ask, why do we remember Christ's death until he comes? I mean, slow pitch softball, right? And your responsibility is to knock it at least into the outfield. At least get to first base. And what is, what, what is the answer? What does it mean to remember Christ's death until he comes? Well, son, many thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, God, who has dwelt for all eternity, took upon himself flesh and blood. He became like you. He became like me. And he took upon our flesh so that he might save our flesh. He might redeem men. And the way in which he did that is he bore the punishment your sins deserved on the cross. He died for you. So when the pastor says, remember Christ's death, it isn't just for our children. It is for all of us. We take those elements connected to the great act of deliverance. We pull them from that historical event and we lay them aside and we say, this is what we are looking at to remind us of what God has done. What is that great thing? What do we pull out of the river, as it were? What is the great instrument of our deliverance? What does Paul say in Corinth that will bring unity and peace to an otherwise divided congregation. I came to you preaching one thing, and that is Christ and him crucified, the cross. The cross. Because Christ died for you. That is what we remember until Christ comes again. And until Christ fully deals with our sin in our bodily resurrection, we remember the mechanism by which we are being saved. And what does that remind us of? That we need to be saved. It reminds us that we once dwelt on the other side of the river. Christ is here, we are here, but Christ brought us through by his death, burial, and resurrection so that now we live with him and we inhabit that place of promise through his sacrifice. And so when the children of Israel came to them many, many centuries ago and they said, Dad, what's up with this pile of rocks? The father the mother should be able to say, well, son, years ago, we walked across that river. Can you believe it? In Jewish cultures, um, they read 
in the holiday or the, the celebration of Purim, the book of Esther, when God delivered Israel out of another pagan king's hand. And as they read through that entire book in one sitting, each of the children, when they are there and they're listening to the story, when Haman comes on, they hiss. <sighs> but when Mordecai's name is read, they cheer. It's how God delivered a nation. And they rehearse it because it is a foundation for the deliverance in history of that people. When we come to these tales that are true events of human history, they should bring us to a similar emotional state. I'm not saying I want to hear any hisses on Sundays. It'll at least let me know you're listening. <laughs> Maybe some cheers. Maybe amens. That's what we've adopted, right, for the most part. Maybe not in Reformed churches, but in American evangelicalism, an, an occasional amen is good. And what you're saying is, I agree. I'm with you. I concur. And so when your children come to you and they ask, why are these stones here? You need to know the answer. And the only way you know the answer is if you know the history. You see, stones are just stones. In fact, sometimes stones are idols. Remember what the psalmist says of the gods of men of earth? They are but wood and stone. And in this regard, some stones weigh us down. But other stones lift us up. There is a kind of worship of the stuff of earth that leaves us in the bottom of the river. There is no salvation. Think of the heavy blindness even now, the hard stones of those who do not worship God of this modern age of secularism and the enlightenment of evolution and nihilism and the long dark that is to come upon the occasion of your death. Dad, tell me again about nihilism. Have you ever heard a kid ask that question? Tell me about the story where we came from single-cell organisms, please. Those aren't stories. They're make-believe. And they're not even good make-believe. They're not even good myths. They are myths and make-believe that remove from the heart of all of human history the poetry and the beauty of redemption. And that's the world in which we live. It's the stone of Sisyphus. I hate to quote Dante twice <laughs> in the same day. You know, the guy that always rolls the stone up the hill and never gets there. You see, these stones were carried out, and they made it to the other side. And what the stones represent are the people. The people whom God delivered. God is a God who is able to bring out of the water something that does not inherently float. 
but is by nature an object of wrath. And then he tells us, my dear children, remember what I have done. And say what you will about Christmas and the church calendar and all of that stuff. But Christmas should be for the saints a very powerful weapon. Because it is a story that is the story that gives all stories beauty and meaning. It is a true story about a king who lived in heaven. He led a people across the Jordan many years ago. And he appeared in different ways. One time he appeared in a fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one who looked like the Son of Man. He even appeared to Joshua a little later on as the commander of the army of the Lord, Sabaoth, as we sing, in a mighty fortress is our God. He walked with them. He was the pillar of smoke and fire. And then one day, he was born in a lowly manger to a virgin and her husband that had some idea what was going on, but by and large was sort of figuring it out. Even as the angel came to them both, they named him Jesus, Joshua, because he would do what? Deliver his people from their sins. He would lead them across out of a land of curse and judgment and into a land of peace and prosperity and covenant fellowship. This is how we redeem the stories of men. And this is how we strike fear. It wasn't only for the people of Israel, but it was so that all the earth may know that the hand of the Lord. Perhaps we need to tell better stories. Perhaps we need to remember the good stories that we have already. Perhaps we need to stop saying, well, you know, that's poetry. So I'm actually not sure if God made the world in six days. Hmm. We've given up the great stories, haven't we? And we call them purely myth. No. This is the story that God has given to us that creates in our children and in our children's children and in the nations of the world fear and worship and adoration. And so may we, like Israel, know what the story is and to raise up in our midst those little things that will cause men, as Peter says, to ask about the hope that is within you. You are the stones. Your life is a testimony of God's grace. And the degree to which you are erected, established in glory of God, will determine the way in which the world responds to the church at large. And what will you say when they ask you about the hope that is within you? Let's pray. Lord, even now we would ask.